The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Everlyn Underhill Chapter 3, Part A Psychology and the Life of the Spirit 1. The Analysis of Mind Having interrogated history in our attempt to discover the essential character of the life of the spirit, wherever it is found, we are now to see what psychology has to tell us, or hint to us, of its nature, and of the relation in which it stands to the mechanism of our psychic life. It is hardly necessary to say that such an inquiry, fully carried out, would be a life work. Moreover, it is an inquiry in which we are not yet in a position to undertake. True, more and more material is daily becoming available for it, but many of the principles involved are even yet obscure. Therefore, any conclusions at which we may arrive can only be tentative, and the theories and schematic representations that we shall be obliged to use must be regarded as mere working diagrams, almost certainly of a temporary character, but useful to us, because they do give us an interpretation of inner experience with which we can deal. I need not emphasize the extent in which modern developments of psychology are affecting our conceptions of the spiritual life, and our reading of many religious phenomena on which our ancestors looked with awe. When we have eliminated the more heady exaggerations of the psychoanalysts, and the too violent simplifications of the behaviorists, it remains true that many problems have lately been elucidated in an unexpected and some in a helpful sense. We are learning in particular to see in true proportion those abnormal states of trance and ecstasy which were once regarded as the essentials, but are now regarded as the by-products of the mystical life. But a good deal that at first sight seems startling, and even disturbing to the religious mind, turns out on investigation to be no more than the relabeling of old facts, which behind their new tickets remain unchanged. Perhaps no generation has ever been so much at the mercy of such labels as our own. Thus, many people who are inclined to jibe at the doctrine of original sin welcome it with open arms when it is reintroduced as the uprush of primitive instinct. Opportunity of confession to a psychoanalyst is eagerly sought and gladly paid for by troubled spirits who would never resort for the same purpose to a priest. The formulae of autosuggestion are freely used by those who repudiate vocal prayer and acts of faith with scorn. If, then, I use for the purpose of exposition some of those new labels which are affected by the newest schools, I do so without any suggestion that they represent the only valid way of dealing with the psychic life of man. Indeed, I regard these labels as little more than exceedingly clever guesses at truth. But since they are now generally current and often suggestive, it is well that we should try to find a place for the spiritual experience within the system which they represent, thus carrying through the principle on which we are working, that of interpreting the abiding facts of the spiritual life, so far as we can, in the language of the present day. First, then, I propose to consider the analysis of mind, and what it has to tell us about the nature of sin, of salvation, of conversion, what light it casts on the process of purgation or self-purification which is demanded by all religions of the spirit, what are the respective parts played by reason and instinct in the process of regeneration, and the importance for religious experience of the phenomena of apperception. We need not at this point consider again all that we mean by the life of the spirit. We have already considered it as it appears in history, 
its inexhaustible variety, its power, nobility, and grace. We need only to remind ourselves that what we have got to find room for in our psychological scheme is literally a changed and enhanced life, a life which, immersed in the stream of history, is yet poised on the eternal world. This life involves a complete redirection of our desires and impulses, a transfiguration of character, and often, too, a sense of subjugation to superior guidance, of an access of impersonal strength so overwhelming as to give many of its activities an inspirational or automatic character. We found that this life was marked by a rhythmic alternation between receptivity and activity, more complete and purposeful than the rhythm of work and rest which conditions, or should condition, the healthy life of sense. This redirection and transfiguration, this removal to a higher term of our mental rhythm, are of course psychic phenomena, using this word in a broad sense, without prejudice to the discrimination of any one aspect of it as spiritual. All that we mean at the moment is that the change which brings in the spiritual life is a change in the mind and heart of man, working in the stuff of our common human nature, and involving all that the modern psychologist means by the word psyche. We begin, therefore, with the nature of this psyche as this modern, growing, changing psychology conceives it, for this is the raw material of regenerate man. If we exclude those merely degraded and pathological theories which have resulted from too exclusive a study of degenerate minds, we find that the current conception of the psyche, by which, of course, I do not mean the classic conceptions of Ward or even William James, was anticipated by Plotinus, when he said in the fourth Aeneid that every soul has something of the lower life for the purposes of the body, and of the higher for the purposes of the spirit, and yet constitutes a unity, an unbroken series of ascending values and powers of response from the levels of merely physical and mainly unconscious life to those of the self-determining and creative consciousness. 62. We first discover psychic energy as undifferentiated directive power, controlling response and adaption to environment, and as it develops, ever increasing the complexity of its impulses and habits, yet never abandoning anything of its past. Instinct represents the corresponding of this life force with mere nature, its effort as it were to keep its footing and accomplish its destiny in the world of time. Spirit represents the same life, acting on highest levels, with most vivid purpose, seeking and achieving correspondence with the eternal world, and realities of the loftiest order, yet discovered to be accessible to us. We are compelled to use words of this kind, and the proceeding is harmless enough, so long as we remember that they are abstractions, and that we have no real reason to suppose breaks in the life process which extends from the infant's first craving for food and shelter, to the saints' craving for the knowledge of God. This urgent craving life is the dominant characteristic of the psyche. Thought is but the last come, and least developed of its powers, one among its various responses to environment, and ways of laying hold on experience. This conception of the multiplicity and unity of the psyche conscious and unconscious, is probably one of the most important results of recent psychological advance. It means that we cannot any longer in the good old way rule off bits or aspects of it, 
and call them intellect, soul, spirit, conscience, and so forth, or, on the other hand, refer to our lower nature as if it were something separate from ourselves. I am spirit when I pray, if I pray rightly. I am my lower nature when my thoughts and deeds are swayed by my primitive impulses and physical longings, declared or disguised. I am most holy myself when that impulsive nature and that craving spirit are welded into one, subject to the same emotional stimulus, directed to one goal. When theologians and psychologists, ignoring this unity of the self, set up arbitrary divisions, and both classes are very fond of doing so, they are merely making diagrams for their own convenience. We ourselves shall probably be compelled to do this, and the proceeding is harmless enough, so long as we recollect that these diagrams are at best symbolic pictures of fact. Specifically is it necessary to keep our heads and refuse to be led away by the constant modern talk of the primitive, unconscious, foreconscious, instinctive, and other minds which are so prominent in modern psychological literature, or by the spatial suggestions of such terms as threshold complex channel of discharge, remembering always the central unity and non-material nature of that many-faced psychic life which is described under these various formulae. If we accept the central unity with all its implications, it follows we cannot take our superior and conscious faculties, set them apart, and call them ourselves, refusing responsibility for the more animal and less fortunate tendencies and instincts which surge up with such distressing ease and frequency from the deeps by attributing these to nature or heredity. Indeed, more and more does it become plain that, that the sophisticated surface mind, which alone we usually recognize, is the smallest, the least developed, and in some respects still the least important part of the real self, that whole man of impulse, thought, and desire, which it is the business of religion to capture and domesticate for God. That whole man is an animal spirit, a living, growing, plastic unit, moving towards a racial future yet unperceived by us, and carrying with him a racial past which conditions at every moment his choices, impulses, and acts. Only the most rigid self-examination will disclose to us the extent in which the jungle and the Stone Age are still active in our games, our politics, and our creeds, how many of our motives are still those of primitive man, and how many of our social institutions offer him discreet opportunity of self-expression. Here, as it seems to me, is a point at which the old thoughts of religion and the new thoughts of psychology may unite and complete one another. Here the scientific conception of the psyche is merely restating the fundamental Christian paradox that man is truly one, a living, growing spirit, the creature and child of the divine life, and yet that there seem to be in him, as it were, two antagonistic natures, that duality which St. Paul calls the old Adam and the new Adam, the law of the flesh and the law of the spirit, the earthward-tending life of mere natural impulse and the quickening life of redirected desire, the natural and the spiritual man, are conceptions which the new psychologist can hardly reject or despise. True, religion and psychology may offer different rationalizations of the facts. That which one calls original sin, the other calls the instinctive mind. But the situation each puts before us is the same. 
I find a law, says St. Paul, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. With the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Without going so far as a distinguished psychoanalyst who said in my hearing, If St. Paul had come to me, I feel I could have helped him. I think it is clear that we are learning to give a new content to this, and many other sayings of the New Testament. More and more psychology tends to emphasize the Pauline distinction, demonstrating that the profound disharmony existing in most civilized men between the impulsive and the rational life. The many conflicts which sap his energy arise from the persistence within us of the archaic and primitive alongside the modern mind. It demonstrates that the many stages and constituents of our psychic past are still active in each one of us, though often below the threshold of consciousness. The blindly instinctive life, with its almost exclusive interests in food, safety, and reproduction, the law of the flesh in its simplest form, carried over from our pre-human ancestry and still capable of taking charge when we are off our guard. The more complex life of the human primitive, with its outlook of wonder, self-interest, and fear, developed under conditions of ignorance, peril, and perpetual struggle for life. The history of primitive man covers millions of years. The history of civilized man, a few thousand at the most. Therefore, it is not surprising that the primitive outlook should have bitten hard into the plastic stuff of the developing psyche, and form still the infantile foundation of our mental life. Finally, there is the rational life, so far as the rational is yet achieved by us, correcting, conflicting with, and seeking to refine and control the vigor of primitive impulse. But if it is to give an account of all the facts, psychology must also point out and find place for the last comer in the evolutionary series, the rare and still rudimentary achievement of the spiritual consciousness, bearing witness that we are the children of God, and pointing not backward to the roots, but onward to the fruits of human growth. But it cannot allow us to think of this spiritual life as something separate from and wholly unconditioned by our racial past. We must rather conceive it as the crown of our psychic evolution, the end of that process which began in the dawn of consciousness, and which St. Paul calls growing up into the stature of Christ. Here psychology is in harmony with the teaching of those mystics who invite us to recognize not a completed spirit, but rather a seed within us. In the spiritual yearnings, the profound and yet uncertain stirrings of the religious consciousness, its half-understood impulses to God, we perceive the floating up into the conscious field of this deep germinal life. And psychology warns us, I think, that in our efforts to forward the upgrowth of the spiritual life, we must take into account those earlier types of reaction to the universe, which still continue underneath our bright modern appearance, and still inevitably condition and explain so many of our motives and our deeds. It warns us that the psychic growth of humanity is slow and uneven, and that every one of us still retains, though not always it is true, in a recognizable form, many of the characters of those stages of development through which the race has passed, characters which inevitably give their color to our religious no less than to our social life. 
I desire, says Akempis, to enjoy thee inwardly, but I cannot take thee. I desire to cleave to heavenly things, but fleshly things and unmortified passions depress me. I will in my mind to be above all things, but in despite of myself I am constrained to be beneath. So I, unhappy man, fight with myself, and am made grievous to myself, while the spirit seeketh what is above, and the flesh what is beneath. Oh, what I suffer within while I think on heavenly things in my mind! The company of fleshly things cometh against me when I pray. 63. O oh, master, says the scholar in Burma's great dialogue, the creatures that live in me so withhold me that I cannot wholly yield and give myself up as I willingly would. 64. No psychologist has come nearer to a statement of the human situation than have these old specialists in the spiritual life. The bearing of all this on the study of organized religion is, of course, of great importance, and will be discussed in a subsequent section. All that I wish to point out now is that the beliefs and the explanations of action put forward by our rationalizing surface consciousness are often mere veils which drape the crudeness of our real desires and reactions to life, and that before life can be reintegrated about its highest centers, these real beliefs and motives must be tracked down, and their humiliating character acknowledged. The ape and the tiger, in fact, are not dead in any one of us. In polite persons they are caged, which is a very different thing and a careful introspection will teach us to recognize their snarls and chatterings, their urgent requests for more mutton-chops or bananas, under the many disguises which they assume, disguises which are not infrequently borrowed from ethics or from religion. Thus a primitive desire for revenge often masquerades as justice, and an unedifying interest in personal safety can be discerned in at least some interpretations of atonement, and some aspirations towards immortality. 65. I now go on to a second point. It will already be clear that the modern conception of the many-leveled psyche gives us a fresh standpoint from which to consider the nature of sin. It suggests to us that the essence of much sin is conservatism, or atavism, that it is rooted in the tendency of the instinctive life to go on in changed circumstances, acting in the same old way. Virtue, perfect rightness of correspondence with our present surroundings, perfect consistency of our deeds with our best ideas, is hard work. It means the sublimation of crude instinct, the steady control of impulse by such reason as we possess, and perpetually forces us to use on new and higher levels that machinery of habit formation, that power of implanting tendencies in the plastic psyche to which man owes his earthly dominance. When our unstable psychic life relaxes tension and sinks to lower levels than this, and it is always tending so to do, we are relapsing to antique methods of response, suitable to an environment which is no longer there. Few people go through life without knowing what it is to feel a sudden, even murderous impulse to destroy the obstacle in their path, or seize at all costs that which they desire. Our ancestors called these uprushes the solicitations of the devil, seeking to destroy the Christian soul, and regarded them with justice as an opportunity of testing our spiritual strength. It is true that every man has within him such a tempting spirit, but its characters can better be studied in the zoological gardens 
than in the convolutions of a theological hell. External reason, says Boma, supposes that hell is far from us, but it is near us. Every one carries it in himself. 66. Many of our vices, in fact, are simply savage qualities, and some are even savage virtues, in their old age. Thus, in an organized society, the acquisitiveness and self-assertion proper to a vigorous primitive dependent on his own powers survive as the sins of envy and covetousness, and are seen operating in the dishonesty of the burglar, the greed and egotism of the profiteer, and, on the highest levels, the great spiritual sin of pride may be traced back to a perverted expression of that self-regarding instinct without which the individual could hardly survive. When, therefore, qualities which were once useful on their own level are outgrown, but unsublimated, and check the movement towards life spiritualization, then, whatever they may be, they belong to the body of death, not to the body of life, and are sin. Call sin a lump, none other thing than thyself, says the cloud of unknowing. 67. Capitulation to it is often brought about by mere slackness, or, as religion would say, by the mortal sin of sloth, which Julian of Norwich declares to be one of the two most deadly sicknesses of the soul. Sometimes, too, sin is deliberately indulged in because of the perverse satisfaction which this yielding to old craving gives us. The violent-tempered man becomes once more a primitive when he yields to wrath. A starved and repressed side of his nature, the old Adam, in fact, leaps up into consciousness and glories in its strength. He obtains from the explosion an immense feeling of relief, and so too with the other great natural passions, which our religious or social morality keeps in check. Even the saints have known these revenges of natural instincts too violently denied. Thoughts of obscene words and gestures came unasked to torment the pure soul of Catherine of Siena. 68. St. Teresa complained that the devil sometimes sent her so offensive a spirit of bad temper that she could eat people up. 69. 69. Games and sport of a combative or destructive kind provide an innocent outlet for a certain amount of this unused ferocity, and indeed the chief function of games in the modern state is to help us avoid occasions of sin. The sinfulness of any deed depends, therefore, on this theory— on the extent in which it involves retrogression from the point we have achieved, failure to correspond with the light we possess. The inequality of the moral standard all over the world is a simple demonstration of this fact, for many a deed which is innocent in New Guinea would in London provoke the immediate attention of the police. Does not this view of sin, as primarily a fallback to past levels of conduct and experience, a defeat of the spirit of the future in its conflict with the undying past, give us a fresh standpoint from which we look at the idea of salvation. We know that all religions of the spirit have based their claim upon man on such an offer of salvation, on the conviction that there is something from which he needs to be rescued if he is to achieve a satisfactory life. What is it, then, from which he must be saved? I think that the answer must be from conflict, the conflict between the pull back of his racial origin and the pull forward of his spiritual destiny, the antagonism between the buried titan and the emerging soul, each tending towards adaptation to a different order of reality. 
we may as well acknowledge that man as he stands is mostly full of conflicts and resistances that the trite verse about fightings and fears within without does really describe the unregenerate yet sensitive mind with its ineffective struggles its inveterate egotism its inconsistent impulses and loves man's young will and reason need some reinforcement some helping power if they are to conquer and control his archaic impulsive life and this salvation this extrication from the wrongful and atavistic claims of primitive impulse in its many strange forms is a prime business of religion sometimes achieved in the sudden convulsion we call conversion and sometimes by the slower process of education the wrong way to do it is seen in the methods of the puritan and the extreme ascetic where all animal impulse is regarded as sin and repressed a proceeding which involves the risk of grave physical and mental disorder and produces even at the best a bloodless pietism the right way to do it was described once for all by Yakabama when he said that it was the business of a spiritual man to harness his fiery energies to the service of the light. That is to say, change the direction of our passionate cravings for satisfaction, harmonize and devote them to spiritual ends. This is true regeneration. This is the salvation offered to man, the healing of his psychic conflict by the unification of his instinctive and his ideal life. The voice which St. Mechtilde heard, saying, Come and be reconciled, expresses the deepest need of civilized but unspiritualized humanity. This need for the conversion or remaking of the instinctive life, rather than the achievement of mere beliefs, has always been appreciated by real spiritual teachers, who are usually some generations in advance of the psychologists. Here they agree in finding the root of evil, the heart of the old man, and best promise of the new. Here is the raw material both of vice and of virtue, namely a mass of desires and cravings which are in themselves neither moral nor immoral, but natural and self-regarding. In will, imagination, and desire, says William Law, consists the life, or fiery driving, of every intelligent creature. 70. The divine voice which said to Jacopona de Todi, Set love in order, thou that lovest me, declared one law of mental growth. 71. To use for a moment the language of mystical theology, conversion, or repentance, the first step towards the spiritual life consists in a change in the direction of these cravings and desires. Purgation or purification, in which the work begun in conversion is made complete in their steadfast setting in order or re-education, and that refinement and fixation of the most desirable among them which we call the formation of habit, and which is the essence of character building. It is from this hard, conscious, and deliberate work of adapting our psychic energy to new and higher correspondences, this costly moral effort and true self-conquest, that the spiritual life in man draws its earnestness, reality, and worth. O oh, academicus, says William Law, in terms that any psychologist would endorse, forget your scholarship, give up your art and criticism, be a plain man, and then the first rudiments of sense may teach you that there and there only 
can goodness be, where it comes forth as a birth of life, and is the free, natural work and fruit of that which lives within us? For till goodness thus comes from a life within us, we have in truth none at all. For reason, with all its doctrine, discipline, and rules, can only help us to be so good, so changed and amended, as a wild beast may be, that by restraints and methods is taught to put on a sort of tameness, though its wild nature is all the time only restrained, and in a readiness to break forth again, as occasion shall offer. 72. Our business, then, is not to restrain, but to put the wild beast to work, and use its mighty energies, for thus only shall we find the power to perform hard acts. See the young Salvation Army convert turning over the lust for drink or sexual satisfaction to the lust to save his fellow man. This transformation or sublimation is not the work of reason. His instinctive life, the main source of conduct, has been directed to a fresh channel of use. We may now look a little more closely at the character and potentialities of our instinctive life, for this life is plainly of the highest importance to us, since it will either energize or thwart all the efforts of the rational self. Current psychology, even more plainly than religion, encourages us to recognize in this powerful instinctive nature the real source of our conduct, the origin of all those dynamic personal demands, those impulses to action, which condition the full and successful life of the natural man. Instincts in the animal and the natural man are the methods by which the life force takes care of its own interests, ensures its own full development, its unimpeded forward drive. Insofar as we form part of the animal kingdom, our own safety, property, food, dominance, and the reproduction of our own type are inevitably the first objects of our instinctive care. Civilized life has disguised some of these crude demands and the behavior which is inspired by them, but their essential character remains unchanged. Love and hate, fear and wonder, self-assertion and self-abasement, the gregarious, the acquisitive, the constructive tendencies are all expressions of instinctive feeling and can be traced back to our simplest animal needs. But instincts are not fixed tendencies. They are adaptable. This can be seen clearly in the case of animals whose environment is artificially changed. In the dog, for instance, loyalty to the interests of the pack has become loyalty to his master's household. In man, too, there has already been obvious modification and sublimation of many instincts. The hunting impulse begins in the jungle and may end in the philosopher's exploration of the infinite. It is the combative instinct which drives the reformer headlong against the evils of the world, as it once drove two cavemen at each other's throats. Love, which begins in the emergence of two cells, ends in the saint's supreme discovery. Thou art the love wherewith the heart loves thee. 73. The much-advertised herd instinct may weld us into a mob at the mercy of unreasoning passions, but it can also make us living members of the communion of saints. The appeal of the prophet and the revivalist, the psalmists, taste and see, the Baptists, change your hearts, are all invitations to an alteration in the direction of desire which would turn our instinctive energies in a new direction, 
and begin the domestication of the human soul for God. End of chapter 3, part A. Footnotes 62, Aeneid 4 63, De Emmet, Christi, Book 3 64, Burma, The Way to Christ, Part 4 65, Unamuno has not hesitated to base the whole of religion on the instinct of self-preservation, but this I must think be regarded as an exaggerated view. See, the tragic sense of life in men and peoples. 66, Burma, Six Theosophic Points, page 98. 67. The Cloud of Unknowing. 68. E. Gardner, St. Catherine of Siena, page 20. 69. The Life of St. Teresa, by herself. 70. Liberal and Mystical Writings of William Law, page 59. 71. Jacopona de Todi, Lauda 90. 72. Liberal and Mystical Writings of William Law, page 123. 73. Jacopono de Tode, Lauda, 81. End of Chapter 3, Part A